Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. This is part one of a two-part series on managing privacy in which I talk with Kirk Harrath, Chief Privacy Officer at Nationwide Insurance Companies. Kirk, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. To start with, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Nationwide, please? Well, I have been the Chief Privacy Officer since approximately January of 2000, and uh, the role began as a project manager uh, right after Graham Leach Bliley passed in November of 1999. Quickly, probably six months into it, we realized that it really wasn't a project, and it was more of a program, and from there, the role has evolved over the years. Uh, I am an attorney as well, and it's sort of a hybrid role. I, I have privacy compliance. I also do all of the law, uh, legal around uh, information security. I have, that has been sort of burgeoned into an, ID, an IT council role, and uh, just recently the supply management services contract management group now reports to me. So sort of have the entire end-to-end uh, -end sourcing and IT uh, process, uh, from a legal perspective anyway, under my uh, control, which from a privacy perspective, which is really you know, at, at, at the end of the day sort of what my, my true love is, uh, it helps us out immeasurably. Well, it's great to talk with you with such experience because you've really seen the evolution of the role. When we talk about managing privacy today, what are the scope and the scale of that job? Well, well, the scope of it is inherently policy and legal, and you know that really permits my team and myself to get involved in in everything. Which, so from the scale perspective, we're involved in virtually everything. We're, we're involved in, in, you know, what, what IT systems uh, we're, we're using, how we secure them, how we, how we uh, control the access to them. We look at all of the new processes around sales and marketing and how data is, is to be or not to be used, how uh, preferences are managed. We work very closely with our insights and analytics team um, so we have a very strong data governance role. Again, coming up with the rules around what people um, can and cannot do with the data, how we collect it, how we have, how we store it, who can have access to it, um, and for how long. So it is a it is a cradle to grave data management role. Kirk, when you hear about breaches, such as we've seen with Epsilon and Sony, what goes through your mind? Well, first, you know, I guess what goes through my mind is I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's not me. And, and I, I say that because I, any company that uses data in which, you know, I gave a talk just the other day, and, you know, I, as I said, if you, if you have customers and you have associates, you have data. So there are some companies that don't think they necessarily have a data management, data governance issue. But if you have data 
then a breach can befall you, uh, regardless of of how good your privacy policies and management is. How no matter how good your IT security controls and access controls are, or your governance, you can have mistakes. You can have hiccups. Um, so that that's my first impression. My second impression is sort of twofold. Number one, the uh, the Sony response uh, seemed uh, again. I mean, I, I feel bad that it happened to them, but they seemed unprepared for the public relations and political side of the breach, particularly considering the scale of it and the fact that it was so it was uh, uh, credit card numbers uh, on so many millions of customers that were that were stolen. And, um, and then on the Epsilon side. What struck me from that was that it wasn't a breach under the typical breach laws. So, you know, what is or isn't a breach is a very technical term of art. You have you've got to look at the state or federal laws and determine whether or not something was a breach based upon the jurisdiction in which it happened. And it generally falls around, you know, your name in association with what we would consider sensitive data credit card numbers, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and then some sort of a transactional account, a debit card, um, maybe a banking account. Epsilon was email addresses. And everybody in the United States, I think, including both of my kids, um, and you know, my kids aren't even out of, out of school yet, got at least one notice from somebody they do business with that their email address was stolen and that they should watch and be careful about, you know, phishing attacks. You know, so this may have been the very first um, instance that a lot of people got where somebody actually told them that the loss of their email address is potentially da dangerous and damaging to them. Not only their email address, but their email address in association with Probably a name and maybe even an address. Um, so it it pushes the definition of what is considered to be a breach a little a little further out um, and makes it, um, in my mind, even more imperative to stop distinguishing between um, good non-public personal information and and bad non-public personal information. And by that, I mean a lot of times we, we try to do risk assessments and, and we protect more sensitive data maybe a little stronger than, than less sensitive information. And, and an email address certainly would, have, would, I think, before Epsilon, and maybe even today for some companies, not for me anymore, have fallen into this, you know, it's not a very sensitive piece of information. So while we put access controls and authentication Around it, like you know, firewalls, uh, just like we would around any uh, web web-facing app. You know, we we might not worry about redacting it or encrypting it um, from you. Um, and I think I think you, you now have to begin to question whether or not you need to just treat all non-public personal information the same. Um, you know, there hasn't been, at least you know, knock on wood. Or, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that there's been any suits against Epsilon yet, whereas Sony does have at least one class action suit out there. Um, but they ha they're going to have real damages 
just as just as a result of having to to cancel and and reissue all the credit cards um, that that were affected by that breach. Kirk, you touched but on this some when you spoke about Sony. From from your perspective, and I realize you've got some distance here. What's your take on how these incidents were handled in terms of privacy? Well, the Epsilon one, I you know, I I don't think they again they they probably did more than they legally needed to do. I am sure that the contracts that Epsilon has with its uh, with its customers, all the companies that were affected, probably say they 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 needed to tell their customers if any any information was ever stolen. But Epsilon permitted, you know, their customers to manage the breach as the customers saw fit because they're the ones whose really brands were in the crosshairs here. Uh, I didn't get a, a letter from Epsilon. I got a letter from about six or seven other brands that I do business with, either, you know, hotel chains or air, airline miles and those sort of things. Um, Again, it comes back to somewhat. It comes back to the lack of preparedness on on the and the and the lack of transparency. I mean, when you finally pull the trigger on a notification, you've got to have all your ducks in a row, and and you need to sort of anticipate the likely questions that are going to come not only from customers, but from your own internal uh, associates from law enforcement, from regulators, and, you know, in the case of Sony, you know, from Congress, which, and so there seemed to be a, again, a lack of, of a secrecy which in and of itself tended to cause, I think, concern among, uh, among the regulators in particular and, and Congress. Um, just because there was a feeling that that they weren't they, that they they weren't getting the whole story. Now that may or may not have been that may have been the whole story, and you know, but but the impression that I think they left the street is that the, there there was something more that was, there was another shoe that was going to fall, and everybody sort of was waiting with trepidation to see what what that would be. And so again, I mean, br- breach. You know, incident response part and parcel of it is is having you know a communications professional on your team, and it is a team effort who you know understands the issues and can work with internal and external constituencies uh, from a public relations perspective to you know to explain what happens and you know somewhat control the damage. I mean, it, and again, at the end of the day, the worst thing you can do is look like you're not you're not transparent. Kurt, what's your personal experience managing privacy in the event of a breach? Well, you know, we've fortunately had uh, had very very few notifications over the years. Uh, the uh, the few that we did have were back really, you know, in the mid 2000s and was a result of of some laptops, once we encrypted our laptops, those generally went away. There's, you know, I think anybody who who is in the business, you know, there are occasionally mistakes of onesies, twosies sort of stuff where you've got mismailings. Um, 
but our experience has been that you you can't prepare enough and it is a multi role interdisciplinary uh, process so you you know my office tends to sort of control at least kick off the investigation if we have some sort of an allegation but we have you know we have information security people we have you know we'll, we'll involve the IT the IT uh, folks who are over a business unit, the business unit themselves has to have some skin in the game. Communications is, is always resident on the team. Um, we'll have forensics people if, it's, if, if, if it requires a forensic uh, investigation. We have our HR team uh, who usually has a representative. And uh, internal investigations, if it's an allegation against, uh, you know, uh, an associate and we need to do an investigation. And each of these individuals plays a role. They're almost like satellites orbiting, you know, a, 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 a celestial body. And when they're needed, they, they beam in. They beam in and they do their role. And then when their role is over, they beam back out again. Um, and it's an, so it's an iterative role-based process. But it requires a lot of preparation and planning. We've we've had one now. We've had a really good process for about for about six years. But I mean, we 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 evolve it. We evolve it several times a year, and, and it's you know it's been getting better, you know, every year since uh, probably 2005. And that concludes part one of our two-part interview with Kirk Harris. In part two. He talks about what he's done to protect privacy nationwide, as well as today's top privacy risks, including mobile technology and cloud computing. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.